Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Go check out MorbidlyBeautiful.com for all your horror pop culture related stuff. From interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and everything in between. Go check them out right now. They also have an extensive library of podcasts I highly suggest you check out as well. Well, when you're done this episode, of course. Now, today's episode, we are going to continue our look at the Phantom Killer from Texarkana. The one that made the town fear sundown. We've gone over the killings. We've gone over the investigators. There's only one place left to look. One rock left to uncover. That's the killer himself. Who were the suspects? Who was it? How did he do it? All those questions we will look at, and hopefully we find an answer or two hidden within the details of this case. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Based on our last couple of episodes, so I think it's safe to say we have an understanding of what this killer wanted to accomplish and how he wanted to accomplish it. He struck in the dead of night. He targeted couples, mostly younger couples, mostly in secluded areas. He also used a pistol, generally a 32 or a 22 caliber gun. There was also never really a solid description of the attacker. The only two to survive were Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry, the only two victims to give any kind of description of their attacker. Now, there were some consistencies between their accounts and their descriptions, but there were also some discrepancies, and we'll look at those right now. They both described him as about six feet tall, wearing a white mask over his face with holes cut out for his eyes and mouth. Hollis believed he was a young, dark-tanned white man under the age of 30 years old. Larry believed he was a light-skinned African-American. Unfortunately, there were no other victims available to give a description, for obvious reasons. So, it was unknown if this killer wore a mask at his other crimes. Perhaps, and this is just a theory, that maybe he wore a mask on his first attack because he didn't actually want to kill the couple, but he also didn't want to be identified. The other attacks, however, if perpetrated by the same individual, well, maybe he wanted to up his game. So he didn't need a mask because he was confident in his ability to hunt and kill people. Now, there was a profile also written up, I guess you could say, created by some of the police officers involved. Texas Ranger Captain Gonzalez, the lone wolf himself, stated that he and his other officers were dealing with a, quote, shrewd criminal who left no stone unturned to conceal his identity and activities, unquote, and that the murderer's efforts were both clever and baffling. He also stated that the man they were hunting was, quote, a cunning individual who would go to all lengths to avoid apprehension. Unquote. At the murder scene of Virgil Starks, Sheriff Presley said, quote, This killer is the luckiest person I have ever known. No one sees him 
hears him in time or can identify him in any way. Officers have said that the killer is apparently a maniac who is an expert with a gun. Victim and survivor Jimmy Hollis said, quote, I know he's crazy. The crazy things he said made me feel that his mind was warped, unquote. Later on, the Texarkana Gazette stated, quote, If one and the same man is responsible for all five murders that have been committed in this vicinity since March 24th, the Gazette feels that the public should know the type of man with which the community is dealing. With that thought in mind, the newspaper asked Dr. Lapala for the following interview. This interview was sought and given only in the interest of the public, and the intent is not to alarm unduly anyone, but to give everyone the benefit of what is considered an expert opinion as to the mental behavior of the man sought in these crimes. Now, Dr. Anthony Lapala was a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institute in Texarkana, and he believed the killer was planning to continue to make unexpected attacks, such as the one on Virgil Starks on the outskirts of town. He also believed that the same person committed all five murders, and that the killer was somewhere between his mid-30s and 50s, apparently motivated by a strong sex drive and sadism. I just want to point out that my knowledge of BDSM, sadism, masochism, and all that isn't really all that deep, but something tells me small town, southern United States, wasn't super familiar with the term sadism, or even sex-driven crimes for that matter. So this was probably a pretty shocking thing to hear from a scientist, or a psychiatrist, or a psychologist, or anybody in the medical field. LaPaula also stated that a person who would commit such crimes was intelligent, clever, shrewd, and often not apprehended. According to the doctor's theories, the killer knew at all times what was being done in the investigation, and knew that vacant roads were being patrolled, which is why he chose the house on the farmland. He said that in many cases similar to this, the killer is never apprehended, and in some instances, he will divert attention to other distant communities where it is believed the crimes are committed by a different individual, or else he will overcome the desire to kill and assault people altogether. Lapala said that the murderer is probably not a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type, and that he could be leading a normal life, appearing to be a good citizen. He also said that the killer probably is not a veteran because if he had served in the armed forces for even a year, his maniacal tendencies would be apparent. He stated that the murder was not necessarily a resident of the area despite his knowledge of it. All of the attacks show a deep understanding and planning. Lapala further stated that the strengthening of the police force would not scare the killer away, but that he would willingly leave due to the difficulty of committing a crime. Quote, this man is extremely dangerous. He works alone and no one knows what he's doing because he tells no one, unquote. LaPaula added that the killer may have reasoned that the only way to remain unidentified is to kill all persons at the scene. LaPaula also did not believe the killer was a black man because, quote, in general, Negro criminals are not that clever, unquote. Remember, small town, southern United States, not the brightest 
bunch in the world in 1946. Very racist, very discriminatory, things may or may not have changed, I have no idea. I don't know, Texas is still fucked up today, so yeah, who knows. Regardless, that was from a quote-unquote expert, and a lot of that does make sense. And I have another theory that I'll discuss with you later on, hopefully I don't forget. Anyway, let's look at the suspects, shall we? There were almost 400 suspects arrested throughout these five murders. There were no suspects actually apprehended during the Larry and Hollis case. But move over the next month to the Griffin and Moore case, over 200 people were questioned, and about the same number of false tips and leads were actually checked. Three suspects were taken into custody for bloody clothing, two of whom were released after officers received satisfying explanations. The remaining suspect was held in Vernon, Texas for further investigation, but was later cleared of suspicion. Man, if you could get away with that today, you walk around, you got blood all over your clothes, and you go, oh, you know what, officer, I get bloody noses, like, spontaneously. They won't happen now, but I promise you it happened this morning. This is all mine. You know, I just didn't, I was late for work, I couldn't change. Can I just go home, please? Yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. Don't murder anybody, because if you do, I'll look really stupid. That's how I imagine some of those conversations went. Now, in the Martin and Booker case, there were actually quite a few suspects, and one serious one. A taxi driver quickly became a major suspect because his cab was seen in the vicinity of the crime scene the morning their bodies were found. But the driver was soon quote-unquote washed out as investigations continue. Friends, acquaintances, and several suspects were questioned in three rooms of the Bowie County building by officers who worked a 24-hour relay. Suspects were brought in from within a radius of 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, both male and female, and white and black. Officers received a lead from Jerry Atkins, Booker's band leader, who said that Betty had carried a saxophone with her, but no saxophone was found. Officers hoped that would lead them to a suspect, perhaps through a pawn shop or reselling of said instrument. Well, on Saturday, April 27th, a man was indeed arrested in Corpus Christi, Texas for trying to sell just that, a saxophone to a music store. The previous Thursday, the 30-year-old man walked into a music store with an instrument and asked the salesperson if the store wanted to buy a Bundy Alto saxophone. The girl told him that she would speak to her manager. The man replied, quote, What do you have to talk to him about it for? You work here, don't you? The girl claimed that the man seemed nervous. Once the manager was summoned, the man fled. The store contacted the police. The man was arrested two days later at a waterfront hotel after purchasing a 45 caliber revolver from a pawn shop. On Tuesday, April 30th, the sales girl identified him as the same man who tried selling the saxophone. Although no saxophone was found in his possession, the police found a bag of bloody clothing in his hotel room. The man claimed that the blood was from a cut that he received on his forehead in a bar fight. That that pesky bloody nose, man. Never mind the saxophone and the blood and the car and the gun. No, it's all fine. 
It's all fine, officer. Just bar fight. Yeah. Jesus Christ. They let anybody go back in the day. Now, after several days of drilling, Captain Gonzalez stated, That's the lone wolf. Remember, never forget the lone wolf. Quote, everything the man tells us is being checked and double-checked, and everything he has told us thus far has been found true. He has answered all of our questions without hesitancy, and we are making every effort to find out if he's telling the truth or is covering up information. We are convinced that thus far the man has told the truth, and if all of his stories are found to be true beyond a shadow of a doubt, we can no longer hold him as a suspect, unquote. Gonzalez also stated, quote, our duty is not to apprehend violators of the law, but to also protect innocent persons. When we make an arrest in this case, and charges are filed, there must be no mistake. We must get the right man or no man at all. Unquote. On Friday, May 3rd, the Gazette reported Gonzalez's announcement that, quote, This man has been completely eliminated. He has been checked and double-checked, and he couldn't have had anything to do with the murder cases here. In the Starks case, several people found in the vicinity of the crime were stopped and questioned. Twelve were detained, but nine were soon released. The three remaining were kept for further questioning, but eventually all detainees were released. Naturally. Now, I get this is a tough case. Back in the 1940s, they did not have the forensic anything to deal with what they had to deal with. They weren't prepared. They weren't equipped. It's hard. You have to match fingerprints, eyewitness reports, check alibis. They didn't have cameras really kicking around. So it was hard for them to nail down a suspect. I get it. But how do you have somebody with a saxophone, with a gun, with bloody clothing, and not pin him to the crime? Now I get, I've always said, Work the evidence to form a theory, not form a theory and have your evidence match it. But I want to know what this guy said to the police that convinced them that he was not the killer, where he got the saxophone, why he was buying a gun and where the blood came from. Sadly, I can't find that. If you do, if you know where to find that information, please let me know. I'm very curious. Now, last week's episode, you may remember the name... Swinney. Yule Swinney, to be exact. We're going to talk about him now. He was the prime suspect in this case. Max Tackett, a 33-year-old rookie state police officer who we talked about last week, had the realization that a car had been stolen on the night of one of the murders, and that a previously stolen car had been found abandoned. So on Friday, June 28, 1946, Tackett found a car in a parking lot that had been reported stolen. He staked out the car until somebody came back to it, then arrested 21-year-old Peggy Swinney. She said that she'd just gotten married in Shreveport, but that her husband was currently in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. Homer Carter, the chief of police in Atlanta, told Tackett that a man had tried selling a stolen car to one of his citizens. Tackett asked the citizen if he would recognize the suspect, but the man said he would not. Tackett noticed that the citizen had a distinct appearance, which included a cowboy hat and boots, and told the citizen, you wouldn't recognize him, but he would recognize you. 
Tackett then asked the citizen if he would be willing to walk with him into several public places. Having had the idea that the suspect would not want to see the citizen and would try to avoid him. On a Saturday in July, Tackett walked into the Arkansas Motor Coach bus station on Front Street near Union Street with the citizen and noticed a man run out the back of the building. Tackett chased after him and caught him in the fire escape. The man was Ewell Swinney. Soon after the arrest, he reportedly made what might have been incriminating statements about being a murderer, such as fear of being sentenced to the electric chair. Because why would you be afraid of the electric chair if you didn't commit a capital offense? Anyway, when police questioned Swinney's wife, Peggy, she confessed in great detail that he was the phantom killer and that he had killed Betty, Joe Booker, and Paul Martin. However, her story changed in some details across several confessions and conversations, and police believed she was withholding some facts due to fear of Swinney or fear of incriminating herself. Police were able to independently verify some details of Peggy's confession, such as locating a victim's possession in a location she said Ewell had discarded it. A shirt with a laundry mark, perhaps linked to the Starks case, was found in Swinney's possession, but the link was not certain. Peggy's confession was the most critical part of the case. By law, in 1946, Peggy could not be forced to testify against her husband, and because she was considered an unreliable witness, Ewell was not arrested for the murder. Instead, with only circumstantial evidence, Swinney was sent to prison as an habitual offender for car theft. Presley reported in his book in 2014 that several investigators in the Swinney case later said that the habitual offender sentence was effectively a plea bargain, even though the case files indicated no such agreement was ever reached. Formally, anyway. Swinney was concerned about being sentenced to death for the murders, so agreed to no contest on the habitual offender charge, and in fact tried to plead guilty, even though the habitual offender cases require a jury trial. It seems like another missed opportunity here that this guy is certainly the killer, and if we had any DNA evidence, I'm not sure if we do, we could probably pin it on him today. But, well, let's just look at what they had back then. This was some of the circumstantial evidence found on Swinney. The car Peggy Swinney was arrested for stealing was the one reported missing the night of the Griffin Moore murders. When Tackett caught Ewell Swinney on the fire escape, Swinney said, please don't shoot me. Tackett replied, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars. To which Swinney then said, Mr. Don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. Similarly, when Ewell was in the police car, he asked Chief Deputy Johnson, quote, Mr. Johnson, what do you think they'll do to me for this? Will they give me the chair? Johnson responded with, you won't get much, maybe five or ten years? They don't give you the electric chair for stealing cars. Swinney then said, Mr. Johnson, you got me for more than stealing cars. When a lawyer told Peggy that her husband was being held for murder, she exclaimed, how did they find out? Peggy took officers near the spot where Paul Martin's car was found. She said she had walked into the woods there. The officer found a woman's heel print in that area. Peggy's family and Ewell's brother-in-law both believed that Ewell was the phantom killer. Police found a khaki work shirt in the suspect's room with a laundry mark of the word Stark, which was red 
under black light. In the front pocket of the work shirt, slag was found which matched samples found in Virgil Stark's welding shop. Ewell Swinney previously owned a 32 caliber cold automatic, but sold it in a craps game. While being accused of murder, Swinney remained silent instead of pleading his innocence. Peggy Swinney confessed to her husband's actions, revealing very detailed information, including some information officers already knew and some they did not. Now you think reading that list, if you put that into a trial today, even with no DNA evidence, this guy's dead to rights. He's done. Lecture chair. Fry him up. Bah. Whatever. He's guilty. But there were some complications. Ewell's fingerprints did not match any of the latent prints at the Brooker Martin crime scene. Peggy Swinney eventually recanted her confession. The Texas Rangers and Sheriff Presley were not convinced that Swinney was the Phantom. Swinney denied being the Phantom and never made a real confession. Officers, including Sheriff Presley and Davis, Chief of Police Runnels, both state police departments worked day and night for six months trying to validate Peggy Swinney's story of her and her husband's whereabouts. They deduced that Peggy was not telling the truth, and that on the night of the murders of Booker and Martin, the couple were asleep in their car under a bridge near San Antonio. Unknown to be either a prank or a true confession, an anonymous woman contacted family members of the two victims, one in 1999 and another in 2000, apologizing for what her father had done. Ewell Swinney was not known to have ever had a daughter. It was all very interesting stuff. What do you think? Do you think it was Ewell Swinney or was it somebody else never even talked to, never considered a suspect at all? Now, there were some other suspects, but nobody quite like Ewell Swinney. There was a German prisoner of war who recently escaped custody, but he was short and heavy. Unlikely to be the same guy. There was a home invasion in Atoka, Oklahoma on May 10th, which was similar to the Stark killing, but ultimately that lead also led nowhere. The man is a little too short, a little too thin. Another suspect went by the name of Ralph B. Bowman, and he was a 21-year-old ex-Army Force B-24 machine gunner. Now, he had been in a coma, and when he woke up, couldn't remember the past however long, and claimed that he was possibly running from something. Maybe he was indeed the Texarkana Phantom, and he just had no recollection of it. However, there was nothing to support that he did what he thought he did and was never really considered a true suspect. So earlier I mentioned that I had a theory of my own and I don't know if this is a common theory or if this is one that has ever been muttered before. I'm sure it has been. It doesn't seem like that big of a leap. These murders took place in 1946 and the killer was never found. The Zodiac Killer operated in the late 1960s. He was never found. Both killers used a pistol. Both killers snuck up on people in Lover's Lane type situations or in secluded areas. Both killers were described as men, obviously, roughly the same size, and both in the southern United States. 
albeit one in central, one on the west. Now, my theory is that they are, indeed, potentially one in the same killer. Another interesting comparison is that they both killed, confirmed, five people. Although, the Zodiac Killer claims to have killed 37. They were both active for a pretty short amount of time during their stints as serial killers, and the similarities are just so, so strong. He was also believed to have worn a mask of some sort, very similar to the Texarkana Phantom Killer. Perhaps it's just a copycat. Perhaps it's just a coincidence. Maybe it's an inspiration. I don't know. Maybe they're not related in any way, shape, or form. But to me, they just seem a little too similar to dismiss. 20 years isn't that long. If the killer from Texarkana was 30, he'd only be 50-ish, anyway. If he was in his 20s, he'd only be 40-ish. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. Perhaps the suspect was indeed in jail for a little while, incarcerated for another crime, something else. Maybe it was Ewell Swinney. Maybe after he got out of prison for his lesser charges, we'll call it, maybe he up and moved to California to restart his life and restart killing once again. Maybe he got a little ballsy too, starting sending letters to the police and so on and so forth. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. That's what the best part about this podcast is. It's so much fun just to sit down and be like, maybe this, maybe this, because it doesn't have any ramifications in the real world, but it's fun to speculate sometimes. But that's going to do it for me today, and that's going to do it for our Tex Arcana mystery. If you know anything more, please feel free to reach out and let me know. But if you like what you heard this week, please do leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Any five-star reviews will be read out on the show. They're a great way to get a shout out and they make me feel great, warm and fuzzy and they support the podcast. Really, it's like a three for one deal just for leaving a five star review and a couple of words. You can also follow along on social media on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd, on Instagram at OminousOriginsPod, where I actually uploaded a new picture recently, so go check that out. I know, shocking. Or on Facebook at HorrorShots. So, Until next time.